Well, when I was a teenager, I had two youth pastors myself transition out of my life. Um, and those were always uh, scary, anxious moments. You didn't know what was next. I know that uh, I loved those leaders. They both left on really good terms, but that didn't necessarily make it easy. I was worried about what would become of my church, what would become of the youth group that I was a part of. Who would I be without these leaders that I loved and respected? Um, and so this might be an anxious moment for you. You might have some questions swirling. And those, those leaders left really well. They, they encouraged our church. They encouraged me, reminded me of God's faithfulness to continue working in my life. And I hope that I can leave on good terms, that I can say goodbye really well and encourage you all before we're up there full-time Holy Week. Uh, so we have some time left. Um, but again, even if I leave well, that doesn't mean all of your questions, your anxieties are going to be resolved. Maybe you're wondering, okay, so what's next for Trinity's youth ministry? Uh, what's next for our church uh, with this pastor who's been here for eight years moving on? Maybe you're wondering, what's next for me? Uh, this is a pastor I'm connected to who I love. This is going to be a big change for my family. Or maybe, maybe none of you are asking those questions. Maybe you have great confidence in Tim and in your vestry, and you should. And maybe you have great confidence in the Lord and his faithfulness to lead this church, and you should. Maybe I'm speaking to myself because I'm worried about who am I without Trinity? I've been here for going on nine years. Uh, I, I was raised up in this church, ordained in this church, married in this church. Who am I without Trinity? Who am I if I'm not your youth pastor? And that's where today's text meets us beautifully in this season. Whether you have been a longtime member and feel really connected to me, whether you're brand new, a visitor, and you're in a season of transition, when we have a lot of change, a lot of flux in our life, we need to know what remains true forever and always. And today we're continuing in Romans 1. We've been uh, in the beginning of this book for a few weeks now. We're in this, this salutation that, that Paul sends to the Roman church. And we're going to focus today on how he addresses the Romans. And, and the beautiful uh, historical context behind that is that Paul had never met them. Paul had never preached to them before. Paul had not planted this church. Paul didn't know them, and yet Paul knew exactly who they were. Paul knew who they were because he knew they were followers of Jesus. And so there were truths about them. In fact, the most important truths about them that he could speak over them before they'd ever met. And so for whatever is next for Trinity, whatever season this church is heading into, whatever's next for me, my family, for All Saints Buena Vista, these things remain true. So if you would open your Bibles with me, we're going to be in Romans 1 today. We're going to see how Paul... We never, we've never met the Apostle Paul. Hopefully in heaven we get to meet him and ask him about all the difficult parts of his epistles. But he can speak over us who we are, what is true of us today. And so we're going to see three things in Romans 1. First, we are a people marked by the radical grace of God in drawing us to Jesus. Second, we are a people who are marked by the undeserved love of God and the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit. And third, we are a people whose lives are characterized by the unending favor and well-being we have in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So if you have your Bibles, again, open up. Romans 1, we'll read verses 1 through 7 together. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, 
set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord." through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ, to all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. The first thing we see in our text today, especially in verse six, is that we are a people marked by the radical grace of God in drawing us to Jesus. And that'd be easy to miss if you didn't understand Paul's usage of this word called. You see, when Paul says to the Romans, you are called to belong to Jesus Christ, he's not talking about a possibility. He's not talking about a door that has been opened that the Romans can step through if they choose. He's not talking about an option, something that may happen. He's talking about something that has happened because of the work of the Holy Spirit. He's not talking about the general call of the gospel to all people everywhere, respond to Jesus with repentance and faith. He's talking about the call that the Holy Spirit makes active in our lives, the effectual call of the Holy Spirit that God brings to bear on our lives. And that might, again, would be easy to miss if you didn't know how Paul uses this word. Paul uses the word kletos, that Greek word for call, all over his letters. And again and again and again, we see he's not talking about a possibility. He's talking about something that is sure and certain by the work of the Holy Spirit. You see it in 2 Timothy 1, 8 and 9. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. Do you hear that? The call of God on your life is the occasion in history that God preordained before history, before the ages began, the salvation that he had planned for you. Again, we hear it in the famous Pauline blessing of 1 Thessalonians 5, 23 and 24. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will do it. You hear in that blessing, there's a call. We're called to holiness, to sanctification, to being blamelessly set apart for God. And he is the one who is faithful and sure to do it. He accomplishes it. it. Again, you see it in 2 Thessalonians 2, 13 and 14. But we ought always to give thanks to to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. To this he called you through our gospel so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Again, the calling through the gospel is just the occasion, the means by which God's eternal choosing and plan is worked out in our lives. God's call is sure and certain. This is the doctrine of the effectual call of the Holy Spirit. Why does this matter for our identity? Why does this matter for the Roman church? Why does this matter for you and me? Well, you see, if we understand that the reason we belong to Jesus Christ, that's the language of verse six, 
you who are called to belong to Jesus, if we understand that we belong to Jesus Christ, not because of anything in us, but because of the Holy Spirit's work in us, well, then we are humble and hopeful people. I've told many of you before, probably the biggest influence on me as a preacher is Dr. Tim Keller, who passed away last year. He's probably the only person I've never met whose death brought me to tears. He was such a big influence on me. And I remember in one of his sermons, he was talking about this teaching, which is not easy to accept. We, we have a hard time with the, the concept that it's not our free will, it's not that our free choice brought us to Jesus, but that God drew us there by the Spirit. And so he was talking about way back in his seminary days how one of his professors was having this dialogue with a classmate. And this classmate apparently had an unbelieving roommate who was raised in the church. And so they were asking this question and the, the professor responded to the student, so why do you believe, why are you a Christian and your roommate isn't? And she said, well, I responded to the gospel in faith and she didn't. He said, well, then why did you respond in faith to the gospel and she didn't? And I don't actually remember if Dr. Keller gave the reason, but what he talked about is whatever her reason was, it was problematic. Did she respond in faith to the gospel and her roommate didn't because she was more thoughtful? Did she respond in faith to the gospel because she was more teachable? Did she respond in faith to the gospel because she was more intelligent because she was a learner, because she was more diligent to follow up on what she'd heard and read the scriptures for herself. Whatever the answer was, it's problematic. Because it all boils down to a superiority in her and an inferiority in her roommate. And that is not the gospel. The gospel is not that you believe in Jesus Christ because you're smart enough and you got it. You figured it out. You were humble enough, teachable enough that when God corrected you, you responded. You were the one who got it right. That's not the gospel. In fact, the gospel is constantly confronting us with the fact that we never wanted God. We hated God. We were in rebellion against God. We did not love him. We did not seek him. It is only by the mercy of the Holy Spirit that he took our stony heart and gave us a heart of flesh that we could rightly love him and respond to him. And so if you understand this doctrine of the effectual call of the Holy Spirit, it's going to make you humble. We have no right to look down our noses at unbelievers. We are not better than them. We are not better than them in any way. We are not more humble, more intelligent, more thoughtful, more whatever, fill in the blank. We ought to be humble because God saved us in our abject rebellion and hatred of him. That is the gospel. And so we can't look down at anybody. And then secondly, this makes us supremely hopeful. Because if you believe that the reason you came to faith in Jesus was something in yourself, well then the reason somebody else might come to faith in Jesus is something in them. And you might say, well, I'm not gonna evangelize that, that, person, that Muslim because they're so committed to their faith. There's no way they'd be open to it. I'm not going to evangelize that atheist. They're so staunchly resistant to the things of God. They're a lost cause. I'm not going to evangelize my family members anymore. They are not teachable people. You could lose hope for the lost. But if you understand fundamentally it is not your strong arguments, 
It is not uh, the teachability or the humility of somebody that brings them to Christ, but it is a miracle of the Holy Spirit. It is a call like Jesus at the tomb of Lazarus who brings dead things to life. Then you can be infinitely hopeful for the lost. You can share this gospel with anyone, knowing it's not you, it's not them, it's the work of the Holy Spirit to bring life. Church, we are a people marked by the radical grace of God in drawing us to Jesus, and it makes us humble and hopeful. Look back at verse 7 with me. To all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. The first thing we see in our text is that we are a people marked by the radical grace of God in drawing us to Jesus. But the second thing we see in our text is that we are a people marked by the undeserved love of God and the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit. Paul loves to tell Christians they are loved by God. 26 different times in his epistles, he uses this term, beloved of God. It's one of the key characteristics in Paul's mind. What does it mean to be a Christian? What does it mean to be a follower of Jesus? It means you are loved by God. And so what does that mean? What does it mean to be loved by God? Does that mean that God has warm, fuzzy feelings for us? Maybe, but we don't have to guess at it. Paul tells us exactly what it means. In Ephesians chapter 2, 1 through 5, he says this. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived, in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. What does it mean that God loves us? It means that he saved us from our sins. It means that he saved us from death. It means he saved us from slavery to the flesh, the world, and the devil. What does it mean that God loves us? It means that the Son of God cared for you so deeply that he became human. He became you, like you in every way accepting sin so that he might stand in your place. He lived a perfectly obedient human life unto his father on your behalf. And he died the death of a sinner on the cross on your behalf. And he rose from the grave victorious, conquering death to secure your resurrection life. What does it mean that God loves us? It means that he spared nothing, not even his own son, that the son of God himself chose to die for you. It's what the apostle John says in 1 John 3:16. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us. He loves us and he died for us. And this too is completely undeserved. He said so while we were dead in our trespasses, that's when Jesus came for us. But Paul continues in Ephesians 2, for by grace you have been saved through faith and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. Hear this again. God does not love you because of anything in you. The gospel is not that you were one of the good ones and therefore God loves you. 
that you were beautiful and attractive to God and therefore he came to rescue you. God's love is not like our love. You know, I'm, I would die for my wife, for my children. I would die for this church. I love you, Trinity. But few of us, if any of us, would die for a criminal, would die for our enemies, would die for murderers, would die for sinners. And that's precisely what God did in Jesus Christ. He loved us when we were completely unlovable and he made us lovely. And that moves to this, this second marker, called to be saints. Because we could absolutely misinterpret this as well. We are absolutely called to be holy, called to be obedient to the commandments of our God, the commandments of Jesus, and walk in step with the Spirit. But what Paul is emphasizing here is, again, this effectual call of the Spirit that by Jesus Christ, we already are saints. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, 11, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. You are called to be saints because you already are saints. He has made you holy. He has made you lovely. He has made you beautiful. That's the gospel. And so I want you to take a moment. Close your eyes. Seriously, close your eyes. Stop looking at me. Stop thinking about Trinity, stop thinking about all saints. Stop thinking about what you're going to eat for lunch today. Answer this question. What does God think of you? And so many of us have a condemning answer to that question. And this is why we need this gospel reminder every single week. When God thinks of you, he thinks you're beautiful. He thinks you are lovely. He thinks you are resplendent with glory because he has made you glorious in Jesus Christ, his son. That is who you are. And whatever is next for Trinity Anglican Church, you need to remember that. That is true about you. God loves you. And he's made you holy. He has made you his saints. He has made you beautiful. That's who you are. Let's read verse seven one more time. To all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. The first thing we see in our text today is that we are marked by the radical grace of God to draw us to Jesus. Second, we are marked by that undeserved love and sanctifying work of God. And third, we are a people whose lives are characterized by unending favor and well-being in God our Father and the Lord Jesus. When Paul writes to these Christians he's never met, he greets them with grace and peace. And this is not a, a hopeful wish. This is much more like the, the priestly blessing that Pastor Tim and I declare over you every week. This is what is true of you in Jesus Christ. May it be your current experience. Grace and peace. And we could do entire sermon series on these two words. We don't have time for that. Quick overview. Grace, such an incredibly important New Testament word, but it simply means gift particularly an undeserved gift. God has blessed you even though you didn't deserve it. God has put his favor upon you even though you didn't deserve it. He has given you the gift of his son, Jesus Christ, 
even though you didn't deserve it. And then peace. In our context, peace often means the absence of something, the absence of conflict, the absence of chaos. But for the biblical writers, it had the, the, the concept of the Hebrew word shalom, which is more positive than simply negative. It was positive. It was well-being, goodness, wholeness of life, the life we have when we live with God. That is the peace we are given in Jesus Christ. And so Paul is telling the Roman Christians, he's telling you and I, the truest thing about you is that your life is characterized by the unending favor and blessings of God you have in Jesus Christ. That's who you are. And that's why we read Psalm 23 today. Because it is so easy to be a follower of Jesus, to believe that that's true, but not experience it in our everyday lives to be distracted, to be, to be caught up in our circumstances, to look at the sorrows, the pains, the difficulties of, the life, of our life and say, that's the truer reality rather than this blessing, this favor, this well-being we have with God. Every Sunday, we say together all of our problems, all of our sins, all the devil's works, we send to the cross of Christ and all of our hopes we set on the risen Christ. And I wonder if that's true for you. Are your hopes set on Jesus or are your hopes set on your career advancement? That you will be a significant, important person, that you will have influence? Or are your hopes set on the fact that you will make enough money to be perfectly secure, that nothing can harm you, that you can live in comfort for the rest of your days? Are your hopes set on your children, that if my children are happy and successful, then I will be happy and successful? That is not a good place to put your hope, and it's the reason your day-to-day -day life feels like a roller coaster based on your circumstances. Things are going well when the thing I've actually put my hope in is going well, and things are going poorly when that hope is failing me. But Jesus Christ is that sure foundation of peace, of grace that our hearts long for. Do you know why it's called Eucharist? when we come to the table. It means thanksgiving. We remind ourselves every week to give thanks to God because the greatest blessing ever to be given has been given to us in Jesus Christ. The greatest possible gift has been given to us. The peace of God is ours now. And so we go to the table to remember and to experience afresh that Jesus Christ has given himself to us as a gift, has given himself to us to remind us of that unending favor and blessing and peace that we have with God, with ourselves, and with one another. That is why we keep coming to the table. Only God knows what's next, Trinity. What's next for this beautiful, incredible church that I love? What's next for the Stanton family and for Buena Vista? But these things are sure and certain. We are a people marked by the radical grace of God in drawing us to Jesus. So would you remain humble and hopeful? We are a people marked by the undeserved love of God and the sanctifying work of the Spirit. So would you rest in that truth that God loves you and has made you beautiful? And we are a people characterized by unending favor and well-being in God our Father and Jesus Christ, our Lord. So would you keep coming to the table? 
to experience afresh this life of blessing that is ours, this life of lack that is ours in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I have so much affection for this church, so much love for these people, and it is my deepest desire that they would be continually grounded in the gospel, reminded of what their identity is in Jesus Christ, that they have been drawn to you, that they are loved by you and sanctified by you, that today, blessing and peace is theirs in Jesus Christ our Lord. Lord, would you meet us at the table? Would you free us of whatever chains, whatever bonds of shame, guilt, fear that are keeping us from experiencing the fact that we are your beloved? We want to see Jesus today. It's in his name we pray. Amen.